0: Dave Mack's Cork History Matters. Brought to you by Red FM.
1: I'm Dave McArdle. This is the Cork History Matters podcast. I'm in the company, once again, of Gabriel Doherty of the UCC History Department. Gabriel, in episode one, we sketched out the story of Tomas McCurtain on the day of the 100th anniversary of his assassination by the RIC, one of the key episodes of a dramatic year in Ireland's history, 1920. We return to that particular point where the inquest comes into play for Tomás McCurtain. We covered this territory too in episode one, but you have subsequently been reading more on this and you see this as something that it was arguably the first thing that caught the world's attention re what was happening in Ireland.
0: Up until this point, there had been events bubbling away under the surface, as it were, in Ireland. In particular, uh, the IRA was, was arming itself, uh, usually relatively small-scale operations like uh, attacks on uh, houses, civilian houses where they believed that weapons were being stored or, or simply purchasing them off, off soldiers, small-scale operations. Uh, in early 1920, then, they started ramping up their, their attack on the RIC. Uh, initially, this had been peaceful, uh, particularly boycotting, uh, the RIC and their families but the the increasingly became violent. Uh, initially, again, this violence was directed more against the buildings of the RIC rather than the individuals. But of course, one should remember that earlier on the in the evening, that Thomas McCurtain was shot, and RIC men had been shot dead in Cork City. So, so uh, lethal attacks on the police uh, had begun. But it's his assassination, which really is a game changer. Uh, this, or well, it's a wake up call not just in Ireland or in the United Kingdom, but internationally, uh, that something very, very serious is happening in Ireland. You have the, the first citizen of one of the largest cities in the country being shot dead, in effect, in his bed almost, uh, certainly in his own house, um, by members of the very police force who are supposed to be protecting the citizenry. Uh, so this was it was a huge event and, and certainly if one has a look at the, the coverage uh, of this in the international press, uh, this starts putting Ireland on the front page uh, in a way that it had never been before. Um, and it isn't just where we'd expect perhaps in, in America or even perhaps in some of the European countries. in some Latin American countries, in Asian countries, uh, increasingly journalists are starting to, to look at Ireland as one of the continuing trouble spots of Europe. There was a perception that everything had been resolved in Europe after the war and the Versailles Conference had, in effect, put a mania of the, the problems to bed. It, it hadn't, certainly, as far as Ireland was concerned. Um, and then this, this the first sensation, which was the assassination of, of Lord Mayor is then followed by a second one, which is, well, on a daily basis, one has the release in during the inquest of, of highly incriminating details as to what went on during the night and this uniformly pointed towards uh, the culpability of, of the police, even though the British tried to circulate a rumour that somehow it had been an inside job and that, uh, as it were, the radical wing of the Republican movement had, had taken McCurdon because he was seen to be uh, a weak link. That simply wasn't true. Uh, but it's it's when the verdict of the inquest comes in, and this is a sensation. It does it doesn't just it names names, uh, and it doesn't just name the individuals who were immediately involved, such as District Inspector Swansea, probably the the best known name of the RIC. In effect, the the verdict of the jury implicates the entire structure of government, British government in Ireland. Uh, It says that what what killed Thomas McCurtain was British government in Ireland. And in particular, it names Lloyd George as being responsible for his death. Uh, We know for a fact that Lloyd George was aware of that and and to a certain extent was a little sensitive to it. He he tried to laugh it off to a certain extent, and the British tried to mock this verdict. But certainly in terms of the coverage that it received, uh, again, globally, that started to, again, just further indicated that Something was was strange and something unusual, and to a large extent
1: unprecedented, was happening in Ireland. Dublin Castle would have called for the inquiry, so argument. Well, it, it
0: was mandatory. It was mandatory. I mean, either an inquest had to be held where there was any unnatural deaths, uh, but largely on foot of this verdict. And of course, remember that this had followed a number of other inquests decisions perhaps the most famous previous one had been on thomas ash uh, the hunger striker back in 1917 which found that he had been killed by his treatment it didn't point expressly point the finger of blame at the, at the government but that was by dint of inference whereas this verdict was very explicit uh, and and name names right the way through to the top of the tree and so uh, well, the, the scene is then set for for the next stage in the drama uh, both locally here in Cork and and nationally. Does that inquest come out soon after? It's it's about a month later. uh, And that month is filled on a daily basis with with very damning testimony from a whole series of individuals, uh, some of whom were actually, had some sort of connections with with the regime, the British regime here. Uh, And and it, it... again, long before the verdict itself was actually made public, it was pretty clear to anyone who'd been paying attention uh, what the sequence of events uh, had been. but to get that decision in such explicit terms, well, was unprecedented and it
1: wasn't a stacked no I- absolutely inquiry. not i mean the
0: the 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 individuals who make up made up a an inquest during those days in effect had to be ratepayers. had to be individuals whose standing in the community was such that you would almost automatically expect them to be more sympathetic to the British system of doing it than perhaps the Republican alternative. And some of the individuals were themselves came from unionist backgrounds. Uh, So to have that type of verdict from that type of pool of individuals, their social background, their political affiliations, was very, very damning. In one sense, one of the, the immediate casualties of that verdict was the inquest system itself, because the British simply decided, well, we're not going to have that Uh, This again. So they abandoned having public uh, inquest juries, and these were then subsequently held under the auspices of the military. Um, And of course, needless to say, uh, no similar verdict was, was returned under that system. But of course, it's then who follows. I mean, we then have the, well, before, as the inquest was just getting going, Terence McSweeney was inaugurated. Uh, as a successor
1: And just to add a little social context uh, you know post-World War One, there's the Spanish flu yep. outbreak globally similar to the sort of Covid experience we've lived through here in yep. Ireland in 2020 and globally too yep. solo headbeg in late 1919 where yep. the RIC officers die yep. is seen as the first action but some people look at the War of Independence beginning on January 2nd of 1920 with the RIC barracks attack in Carrig Tool which in effect chases the RIC back out of rural Cork and into the city.
0: Yes, yes. And and, and certainly, I mean, this was uh, a policy that was pursued nationwide, but certainly had a, a peculiar intensity in Cork between Carrick and Kilmurray, uh,
1: where there was an unsuccessful attack on, on the same day. So then the Lord Mayor is assassinated effectively in his bed, although yeah. on the landing, uh, as witnessed by his son, Terence McSweeney is corporation and that they were the two key figures in Cork, rebel circles let's yep. say as outlined in the last uh, podcast. Uh, the inquest is ongoing but uh, interesting for me and maybe this is the point to, to move forward from is that five days after the murder of Tomás McCurtain, the first black and tans arrive in Ireland uh, and whilst standing on the platform in Limerick Junction are observed uh, as looking something similar to the Scartine black and tan hunt in County Tipperary uh, and and you know, so moves were afoot even yep. while inquest. Well, so, the, the,
0: the, well, the, this was a legacy of the campaign against the ROC that had been ongoing since they the were previous summer. Of numbers. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ROC had been very much under the gun, if you'll pardon the expression, certainly in, in the crosshairs of uh, both Sinn Féin and, and the IRA. Again, to repeat what I said earlier, initially this campaign was largely peaceful, uh, albeit still uh, very, very forceful, using the traditional methods of the boycott dating back to uh, the times of the land war of the 1880s. And when this method hadn't proved as successful as perhaps some of the the more radical thinkers within the Republicans had, had wished, then the, the the game is upped. Uh, you start having attacks on the barracks, and then you start having uh, attacks, lethal attacks on the police themselves. As you mentioned, these lethal attacks had begun already in in 1919, most famously in Solahed Beg, but as part of a consistent, coordinated pattern, it really is 1920 uh, when things really start cutting up. Um, and due to the
1: defections in the RIC. And, this, and, and
0: so what happens is that there is a, a collapse in morale uh, of the RIC. There is a number of causes. The first is simply the the pressure that they're under, that they cannot leave their barracks without fear of attack. Their families are also intimidated. They are boycotted, shunned, sent to Coventry. Their wives, uh, where they were married, that nobody would speak to their wives, nobody would speak to their children. Uh, and it became... For a job that had the reputation of being sort of a, a good, steady job, uh, one with a relatively high wage, uh, one where it had a, a high social standing in the community, you instantly become uh, a pariah. And it became very, very difficult for many members of the RIC to to stay with that. You also then had other pressures on the RIC. One of the problems that the, the government had was that it was tempting to make concessions, for example, to hunger strikers, uh, so that in Mount Joy... Uh, in March of 1920, there was a huge hunger strike which lasted for, well, over 20 days. There were uh, uh, an equally big one in Wormwood Scrubs, uh, prisoners who had been deported. And on both occasions, in effect, the government capitulated. They didn't want another Thomas Ash on the hand. But, of course, that further demoralized the members of the RIC because having successfully arrested who they regarded as the culprits in their localities, it, it was galling to them to see those individuals being released. And then, on the other hand, coming from above within the RIC, you start having uh, pressure being put on, on the RIC to start adopting methods that many of the members of the RIC found utterly unacceptable. Perhaps most famous, of course, is the Listowel mutiny, uh, where a senior member of the RIC visits the, the local barracks and, in effect, tells the, the, the local members that they can shoot to kill. They can they can kill with impunity. Um, if they saw somebody who they thought might be carrying a weapon, somebody even walking around with their hands in the pocket, uh, in effect, they were, they were told expressly to shoot that person uh, and to kill them. And they were told that, that you will not get into trouble uh, if you shoot uh, such a person, if you find yourself in that situation. And of course, many members of the RAC were horrified at, at that, suggestion I mean as far as they were concerned they weren't murderers, they were upholders of law and order and that precluded that type of action um, but it also it also meant is that they realized that this is what, they, what was going to be expected of them on that particular occasion of course uh, the RSA mutiny and, and in effect tell the, the officer who is, is English, to get out of there uh, very quickly or he might find himself in a rather tricky situation. So the the pressure is on the RSE coming both from the Republican side and also from from above. Uh, And many of the members of the RSE simply found this uh, pressure unbearable. About half the members of the RSE resign during the course of 1920 through to 1921. Um, of course, the fact that they had been driven out of their barracks meant that, in one sense, less numbers are, are needed. But, of course, that merely served uh, to prove the point of how dominant uh, the IRA was across pretty well, certainly most of rural Cork, uh, outside the outside the towns. So it was, it was a very difficult situation. And of course, then the British had to find some way to find the numbers that that would be able to to man even the reduced staffing that they had. So this is where the Black and Tans came in. I mean, the Black and Tans were largely ex-soldiers. They were encouraged to adopt, as it were, the same militaristic outlook on on their deployment in Ireland as they had during their service in France or in Gallipoli or in Mesopotamia or elsewhere. Uh, They weren't given any meaningful training in terms of the law of Ireland, Or how to apply the law. It was very clear that they were there as a garrison, uh, in effect as a a, a de facto military garrison. And then, secondly, this wasn't sufficient for the British because, of course, the Black and Tans, as the RIC had been, had been largely static. They they could cycle around and and so on and so forth, but they weren't a strike force. So it's in this context that the British start now recruiting a new and even more troublesome force: the auxiliary division uh, of the RIC which are ex-officers, which are paid an exorbitant rate of £1 a day, uh, famously. And the, the real distinctive feature of the, of the Auxiliaries was that they were intended to take the fight to the IRA, not just to sit there in their barracks or, or to be attacked while on patrol, but to do to the IRA what the IRA had been doing to the RIC, to ambush them, to hunt them down. Uh, and they are deployed later on in the summer. And the scene is set for a very, very rapid escalation uh, and the, it, in terms of the numbers of incidents and the deterioration in terms of
1: conduct. At the same time, civil disobedience is growing with Dublin dock workers refusing to handle British war material yes. joined by Railroad. Yes. It's such a... It's a heady brew. I mean, oh. it's
0: I mean every, every element... Uh, is joining in. Remember, even things like the the suffragettes, many of the suffragettes who had been active in, in the movement, many of them, uh, certainly those of a nationalist inclination, start joining in. Kumanuman are, are exceptionally active in a in number of fields. In many respects, they lead many of the demonstrations, for example, outside jails, precisely because they realise that the British couldn't be seen to be, uh, for example, Battening them uh, away in the way that perhaps they wouldn't have shown such compunction when dealing with with men. Um, so I mean, and as you say, they're the, the the trade union movement. Even though there's there's a certain split within the trade union movement, because of course you do have. Unionist members of the trade union movement, particularly in the industrial Belfast, uh, many of those coming from a Protestant background, and so there was an element within the trade union movement that wasn't sympathetic to the Republican campaign, but by and large, certainly within, for example, the the Transport and General Workers' Union, Larkins Old Union, uh, that there was there was sympathy.
1: Um, and this even spreads further afield to India.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, much the same way as we have discussed the mutiny within the RIC uh, in, in Ireland. You start having the dread prospect uh, of the the Irish contagion infecting other parts of of the empire. Remember, of course, that India was itself already uh, in turmoil. You'd had the horrific Amritsar massacre in, in 1919 when Hundreds and hundreds of Indians had simply been shot dead in the most appalling massacre you can possibly imagine. Uh, Interestingly, one should remember that the the general who gave the order to fire uh, was educated in Middleton College uh, and the governor general uh, of India at the time, you know, so uh, so Michael Dwyer was a Tipperary Catholic, um so there were there were, as it were, the Irish on the other side uh, uh, as well. But certainly in terms of the impact that Ireland had on the Empire, I, India is the is the, the best example. Uh, you do have soldiers within the Connacht Rangers who, uh, in protest at what they see as as the excesses inflicted particularly by the black and tans and the auxiliaries but also to a certain extent by some of the things that the army itself had been doing um and you do have a number of, of those individuals who, who are killed uh executed uh, but it's not just there it you also have as it were the example of republicans taking on the british on the british in british back door, uh, on their doorstep I should say Uh, and for the Indian point of view the fact that they were so distant uh, A, it means that the British are occupied Uh, the British had to withdraw troops from India in order to hold them in reserve for Ireland and B, it also served as an example that you you could take the British on, they weren't invincible, but you also have methods Uh, again I suppose here we come back to Cork and Terence McSweeney's hunger strike he absolutely had an influence upon Mahatma Gandhi in in terms of his use of the hunger strike uh, as it were a non-violent Form of protest. Uh, Terence McSweeney had been influenced uh, by Thomas Ashe. And oh, yes, of course, yes. I mean, and 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 there the have been issues report. The, the thing is about McSweeney is that he was the first one to die, as it were, of hunger. Ashe died of, as a result of being force fed, uh, after a relatively few days on hunger strike. Whereas McSweeney lasts over seventy days, uh, and, is, is uh, and it is brutal, and that really it doesn't just make. The, the headline news internationally for uh, on one day or two days. This is week upon week upon week. I'm, I'm studying this just at the moment. If you have a look at the leading American newspaper, something like the New York Times, he, the, the, the McSweeney hunger strike is basically on that, that front page pretty well every day, where maybe it may be two out of three days during the entire duration of the hunger strike. Now that's the leading newspaper, as it were, in, in America, is having this story. It is the global news story uh, of autumn 1920 it, it, out, out doing even things like let's say the Russian invasion of Poland uh, and the fear that Bolshevism was about to spread over his uh, Western Europe uh, even that had to play second fiddle to uh, to McSweeney. It's also important to remember of course that the hunger strike itself affected America directly. There were a number of strikes in America uh, where initially Irish, Longshoremen and, and dock workers refused to handle British goods, uh, and, and and not just goods, but refused to allow ships to dock, uh, even liners. Um, and and by degrees, other nationalities who were also working in those docks uh, also joined in in the protest.
1: In, in sympathy, uh, and as you pointed out in the first podcast. Uh, The Irish factor had already had a major influence in American politics with Woodrow Wilson, who'd gone to the League of Nations in Versailles with this sense of, you know, freedom for, um, you know, for people to express their right to nationhood, uh, which doesn't happen in the case of Ireland as a result of David Lloyd George's intransigence. Yes. Uh, and this causes him to lose the Irish-American vote in America, uh, lose the next election and bring in well, America first.
0: Wilson, Wilson has basically a breakdown. Uh, it's, it's at this stage impossible to know exactly whether it's a physical breakdown, a mental breakdown or one of the both. But he doesn't contest the presidential election in 1920. But you do have a presidential election in 1920. Uh, and the Irish question is part of that. Uh, the Irish do try to get... Uh, commitments from both parties, Harding and Cox, to make a commitment towards Irish self-government. Both refused to do so, but certain in terms of the timing of the McSweeney hunger strike, which is in the autumn of 1920, only a couple of months before the vote itself is taken. Uh, this this adds to to the the dynamic mix and the very fluid mix in way in which the Irish question was impacting upon American politics. Remember, of course, you still had you also have De Valera there, uh, who'd been there for since really 19, midway through 1919. Uh, He's starting to have extreme problems, however, at this point in terms of uh, running into conflict with with some senior figures within Irish America. Uh, But certainly it it was the autumn of 1920 is when things
1: really start coalescing. So when we told the story of of Tomás McCurtain last time round, it, it, it seemed to sort of, McSweeney and McCurtain... It felt to me, as you described it, that they mirrored each other as as individuals and in their rise uh, through the, the history, so to speak. Uh, McSweeney replaces McCurtain as Lord Mayor of Cork. Mm. Uh, are, are, were they similar characters uh, and... You know, he seems like obviously having died on hunger strike. He's clearly a very principled man. He, but he, even the words surprise. he uses—so yeah. he's trumped up charges of treason—is what he's charged yeah. with. As 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 the Lord, the Sinn Féin Lord Mayor of Cork, uh, and he says something as he comes out: "I'll be free in a week, uh, either released yeah. or dead." Yeah. Is that it? Something yeah. to that effect.
0: Well, in the month he said, "I mean, I'll decide my freedom, and said, I'm going on go hunger strike. So you'll either release me because of what I'm doing, or I will die through my own." Uh, actions but one way or the other I'm in charge you may put me in prison but I control you uh, by my action, it's one of those curious, as were inversions of power that happened during uh, during the hunger strike. To come back to your question, in terms of of the the connections between the two men, there's sometimes a rather sort of hackneyed attempt to to depict the two men as sort of almost polar opposites. That McCurtain is the pragmatist, uh, McSweeney is the the airy dreamer and philosopher. Um, they shared far more in common than than uh, what. Uh, differentiated them uh, in particular both are absolutely committed to the Irish language I mean the Gaelic League had been probably the first point of contact for both in terms of their exploration of the wider realm of, of Irish language both are involved in uh, industrial development McCurtain uh, perhaps more famously. Uh, but McSweeney certainly, I mean, what is often forgotten, McSweeney, his day job for many years was, was basically a teacher of accountancy. So he wasn't somebody who was oblivious to business. I mean, that's where he, he earned his daily crust. Um, both, of course, were very heavily involved in the Irish Volunteers once it started. Both were traumatized by what had happened or not happened uh, in 1916. So, in terms of of their outlook, there was differences. Perhaps, it's probably fair to say that McSweeney was 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 more involved in uh, the arts. I mean, he was he was a poet, uh, he was a, a dramatist, very heavily involved in the the art scene here in Cork. Uh, I think slightly right green on my face here. It's partly, I think, because he was single at the time uh, and he didn't have the family commitments that Tomás McCurtain mm. uh, may have done. So, uh, But they
1: were the one the one and one and two in Cork. Yes, absolutely. In terms absolutely. Of the...
0: uh, but one, one and two both on the political side within yes. Sinn Féin and one and two on the military side mm. within within the Irish What families. Did he spend time in Frangok as well? He, well, I, I just have to check now whether mm. he's in, in Frangok. But he spends, as, as a, a large number of them do, including Tomás uh, McCurtain, a number of times in a variety of different jails and prison camps between basically 1916 and 1919. They see the insides of many convict uh, prisons as well as prison camps. So McSweeney was, he, he wrote... Uh, A number of columns in newspapers. He actually founded his own newspaper, Fianna Fáil, uh, in in Cork in the autumn of 1914. And it's an extremely interesting read uh, in terms of his commentary on what was happening uh, at the outbreak of the war, the action of John Redmond in supporting the war and so on and so forth. Eventually, the the paper is suppressed. He would had to sell his entire library to finance the newspaper. And this is somebody who who valued books uh, almost more than life itself. So it's an indication of just how committed he was. About 10 years before, he'd written for the the extreme Republican newspaper Irish Freedom. uh, And he wrote a a series of columns, uh, which were eventually published after his death as Principles of Freedom, uh, and they make for a fascinating reading. They really do. Um, Manuel, he, he was a great wordsmith. I mean, he really thought hard about how to craft sentences and, and how to develop his argument. Um, one thing's for absolutely certain, if the British had read even a small part of, that, of those columns of that book, and they, they had because these, these columns were being monitored by the police, they would have known that he wasn't somebody who was ever going to back down. I mean, he, he absolutely made a point 10 years before the hunger strike, saying that there will come a time when, as it were, the individual is going to be tested. And that individual must spend his time between now and then preparing. Uh, and that's ultimately what he does. So McSweeney does not go on that hunger strike uh, believing he was going to be released. I think he genuinely believed uh, mm-hmm. that, that it might necess- it might take his life. And he was prepared to do that but even before he, he started the strike. One should also, of course, remember that there was a separate hunger strike uh, ongoing in Cork Jail. In fact, which had started a day or two before McSweeney began his hunger strike. Uh, A number of individuals, some of them from Cork, from Limerick, from Tipperary, were incarcerated in Cork Jail. These are individuals, to a certain extent, have been uh, been overlooked. Uh, But ordinary rank-and-file members of of the uh, volunteers, Um, nothing that would mark them out in the way that perhaps... McSweeney had been marked out by his his experience and his writings and his philosophy, as it were, but ordinary rank and file members of of the volunteers, and every one of them stuck to the hunger strike. Two men that die uh, on hunger strike: Murphy and Fitzgerald. Uh, and, and and that's jail cross there, the in old jail cross court in, jail, in, 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 which the is now the UCC campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some amazing photographs taken outside the jail of demonstrations, sayings of the rosary. Uh, There's also pictures of the whole of uh, Grand Parade, just as densely packed as you can possibly imagine. Again, saying prayers in support uh, of those who are on hunger strike. Uh, Practically every factory or place of employment in the city uh, at some point in time during the, the hunger strikes, both in Brixton, where McSweeney was, and, and in Cork Jail, uh, they, they leave, they simply down tools and go to mass, uh, again, in, in terms of expressing their, their solidarity with what was going on. And you have the Capuchin Order based in, in Uh Individuals there are Father Dominic uh, is is the chaplain to the Lord Mayor. So he has daily access to McSweeney in Brixton, but they also, uh, along with the regular prison chaplains, go into to Cork Jail as well. Um, so the, these, these twin hunger strikes are really very difficult experiences. They really are not just for the, obviously, the individuals who are on hunger strike, for, for their, their jailers. Uh, the, the British government made it clear that the warders, the medical officers especially, uh, who had responsibility ultimately for the physical well-being of prisoners um, and others. I mean, you have, let's say, the nuns in the Bon order uh, go in because the the prisoners in Cork jail jail say, we don't want any prison doctor. Uh, We will only accept treatment and care from from the nuns. Uh, Partly because they simply didn't trust the prison doctors not to do something if they were unconscious or asleep or to try and sip something in the water or or something like this. So it, it, it was... It was very tense. The fact that the, the strikes go on so long, I mean, they both go on for well over 70 days. Nobody really knew how long you could last. Uh, again, I've looked at, at this. There, there had been some hunger strikes. There had been, for example, the hunger strike in Mount Joy and one scrubs where the men had gone into well over day 20. Uh, but there was a belief that once you got into maybe around the fourth week, that was you, you could go at any point uh, whereas McSweeney lasts and, and the men in court lasting 10 weeks there had been a hunger strike uh, as it were uh, an experiment uh, in America at the end of the 19th century where a doctor had in fact starved himself had lasted for 40 days uh, and had recovered um, and that was that was often forgotten about but there was there were allegations from both sides that in effect that they were being surreptitiously fed. And was Ireland unique in in
1: in hunger strike being used as a political? It, it
0: wasn't unique in the sense that the the suffragettes had used, it. and even the suffragettes had, had uh, seen that there had been some places in in Russia, for example, the hunger strike had been used. Uh, but I suppose it's the history of the hunger strike in Ireland. I mean, going back to to Celtic times, uh, there was an element of provision within Breton law uh, that. The, Stipulated the the form that a hunger strike could take. If somebody had done you wrong, uh, you went and hunger struck on on their doorstep, and if they allowed you to die, in effect, your death was was uh, they were held responsible. Um, and that that tradition was almost unique to Ireland. There was some sort of equivalent in India. Again, this is one of the reasons why Gandhi's hunger strike struck such such, uh, such a chord, because as well, it plays into uh, Indian history. Uh, but Ireland is pretty well unique in Europe in having as it were, that, that history uh, with regard to, uh, to hunger strike. WB Yeats had, had written a play about this about 15 years before, so it wasn't exactly a, a secret. Um, but the hunger strike is, 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 is just a, an, it's a, it's an awful weapon. I mean, it really is. I mean, it degrades, obviously, the people who are inflicting uh, the prison conditions, obviously the individuals who are subject to it. There's a tremendous stress on their their family. Uh, the British did allow the family pretty well free access uh, to to the prison, but not quite sure whether that was necessarily a good or a bad thing because you could literally see your loved one wasting away uh, before your eyes. And it just goes on so long. Nobody really believed that it could, that any human being... Could last, uh, and you start then having the deaths both of McSweeney and the two deaths in Cork Jail happening with basically within a few days of each other, and thereafter the, the hunger strike is is called off. In one sense, the British gained a victory because the hunger strike wasn't used again, but the extent of the the mobilisation of of international and domestic opinion uh, in support of the republican cause, and the fact that they were seen as as martyrs, self-sacrificing uh, martyrs. Um, Meant that certainly, I so say, the winners from the hunger strike, without a shadow of a
1: doubt, would have been the, uh, were well, the republican movement. It's incredible, and all through that period. So it's August nineteenth is when he's arrested and goes on hunger strike in yep. Brixton, Brixton prison. It's October twenty fifth when he dies after the seventy four days. With his death galvanising public support mm-hmm. worldwide, as you've mentioned, and in between all of that time, uh, there's the burning of Balbriggan. Yes. There are. Uh, uh, soldiers from the Duke of Wellington's regiment shot dead, uh, the youngest just 15 years of age, one of the ambush party arrested the scene, Kevin Barry, yes, 18-year-old UCD medical student, RIC officers ambushed in, in Clare, but also, just to bring us back, before we maybe move forward again, uh, a, a, a tie-in to the late Lord Mayor Tomás McCurtain again, Swansea is tracked. Yes, uh, I mean, this was uh, this was
0: a point of honour uh, for the IRA, that, that Swansea was seen as the individual who was most culpable in terms of those on, on the immediate scene. Uh, the British had made sure to get him out uh, of Cork very, very quickly after uh, both the assassination and then the verdict. But the IRA had their eye on him, and he's, they, they track him to Lisbon, uh, and he's shot using Tamaus McCurtain's own gun. Uh, uh, Michael McCollins made sure that the deed was done, and when the gun was returned to the family, uh, that was made expressly clear that, that this gun had had killed Swansea.
1: And they had two efforts at it. Seemingly, the taxi broke down first time round. Is it? <laughs> they, they took the train to Belfast yeah. and then uh, commandeered yeah. or hired a taxi. Well, it, of course, remember that it's it's you're going into sort of
0: the, the enemy territory. Yes, I mean, Belfast is, yes. is. And is Swan
1: very, is Swansea a Lisburn man? Is he an he, Irish man? Well, he's
0: an Irishman. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's an Ulster Protestant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, a unionist, but he would certainly have have regarded himself as uh, on the other side of of, of the political divide very very firmly. Uh, But for, for Corkonians, going to Cork, even going to Belfast in itself, I mean, even now, I suppose the Cork accent stands out in Belfast in the circumstances of the time. Remember, Belfast in, in 1920 had its own peculiar problems. There are any number of, of issues, particularly arising from sectarianism, uh, attacks upon Catholic workers in shipyards, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then you have the killing of, of Swansea and this gives the green light to sort of open season on Catholics, both in, in Lisbon, in in Belfast and elsewhere.
1: Well, whatever Catholics were in Lisbon were, were burnt out and never returned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it, it was it was
0: it was a, a very heavy toll uh, that was inflicted on the local Catholic community. Uh, so all of this is happening pretty much all at the same time. I mean, even Kevin Barry's. Uh, execution, the first execution under the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act, the British pass a new piece of legislation in the summer of 1920, in effect giving them even greater powers than they already enjoyed under the Defence of the Realm Act, and in particular, in effect transferring control over almost law and order to the military. Uh, Pretty well every offence now, uh, if you Sort of litter the streets, almost you're, you're subject to a court-martial. There was still some attempt made to hold ordinary courts, but most of those ordinary courts had been subverted by the Dole Courts. Uh, so the British were using the military not just simply as, as an armoured weapon, but as, as a judicial one uh, and, and trying uh, Republicans before them. Um, so that those those court marshals uh, had the power to inflict the death penalty, and Kevin Barry is the first uh, is the first casualty. But even there, he, his death is slightly overshadowed by the fact that it happens on the same day as McSweeney's funeral. So it just gives you an indication of just how incident packed uh, things are. Of course, what McSweeney's funeral itself was controversial because the body should, was planned to have been returned to. To Dublin, and the British, in effect, hijack the boat, uh, saying, "No, it's not good We're not going to have another O'Donovan Rosser funeral. We're not going to have another Thomas Ashe funeral. Uh, we're going to dictate the terms by which this funeral takes place." So the body is then shipped to Cork, and you have this very unedifying scene where, in effect, the British land the body, and the body is left on the docks uh, because the family said, "We are not going to. We are not going to play ball. Uh, we." you are disgracing yourself you are interfering with in effect a religious ceremony the british said this was a political ceremony so you have this sort of appalling thing where the the, the casket in effect is left uh, on the on the key side uh, for a short period of time. In Cove, presumably. No, this is actually in town. Uh, the, body, the the British land the body, the, the ship pulls into Cove, then there's a small little tender that brings the ship and lands it on uh, the quayside. And
1: where had the family wanted it brought? Back to Dublin for a full... For a
0: full-scale funeral. Uh, and in fact, what happens is that in Dublin, a, a, in fact, a mock funeral takes place. Uh, a huge turnout takes place, and there isn't even a body there. And and this is is again, it's very much modelled on the O'Donovan Rosser and, and Thomas Ashe funerals. Uh, and then the British, in when the body itself is finally uh, returned to the the North Cathedral, the British, in effect, dictate to say. There's only going to be a certain number of people can follow the cortege. We're not going to have an open display of weapons by the volunteers that had, as it happened, for example, you know, Donovan Roster and, and, and Ashley's funeral. Um, and they were determined to make sure that the lesson of who was in charge, uh, which, as far as they were concerned, had been demonstrated by the fact that they allowed McSweeney to die on hunger strike, uh, was was copper-fastened with a display of force during the funeral itself.
1: Well, I mean, the, the story of both podcasts, the idea of who's in charge, I mean, the whole thing is just such a steaming mess. Yeah, uh, I watched recently the Michael Portillo show where he looks at this whole period through the eyes of the British papers and, and there's, there's talk of all sorts of new characters being brought into Dublin Castle mm-hmm. and realising just... Uh, what a mess the place is, yeah. and how inefficiently the whole thing is being run.
0: You could not have devised a more inefficient uh, and, and unfit for purpose structure of government than, than Dublin Castle had. I mean, you had the Viceroy, the Lord Lieutenant, who uh, Lord French, who was was very much old school in terms of showing them hard steel. In theory, he he was brought in as as a generalissimo when he was first appointed. You have a Chief Secretary who, in theory, is the political cabinet member who's responsible, but he has to be in London uh, to answer questions in Parliament, so he can't be in Dublin to experience what is happening day to day. You have a whole series of civil servants, uh, many of whom are plotting <laughs> and have their own agendas uh, as going on. You have several different. You have the the. Black and Tans, which in effect are a law unto themselves, the RIC, the Dublin Metropolitan Police. You have the Ulster Special Constabulary, the British in effect militarise, put into uniform the old Ulster Volunteer Force and call them the Ulster Special Constabulary. You have the British Army. Uh, And it is just... And then, of course, on the other side, you then have the the Republicans. Remember, on top of all this, the British are introducing, as far as they're concerned, Home Rule. Uh, The debate, of course, had moved on at this point, but they introduced the Government of Ireland Act and, and not alone are they ignoring the will of uh, the population for a republic. They're now proposing to cut the country in two, um, something which even unionists can't even begin to comprehend. I mean, uh, it, it was it, it perhaps at this day, uh, perhaps a little bit difficult for people to understand that unionists found the partition of Ireland as incomprehensible as nationalists, nationalist, unionists and nationalists thought of Ireland in all-Ireland in all Ireland terms, because that's the way it had always been. The unionists wanted every part of Ireland to remain within the United Kingdom. They didn't want any part of it to leave, because someone like Edward Carson was a Dublin unionist. I mean, his, his family was, as it were, on the wrong side of the border. And, of course, remember, in Ulster, it's not just Britain, the United Kingdom, that's partitioned with, with this. It's not just Ireland's going to be partitioned. Ulster is going to be partitioned. And the Ulster unions were organised on a nine county basis. So those people, as it were, on the six county side, had a bit of explaining to do to uh, the unionists in, in yes. Cavan, Monaghan, and Donegal, why it was that, in effect, they were accepting, with bad grace, but accepting a proposal that put them, cast them into outer darkness and put them under the control of a, of a Dublin parliament, which was far worse than would have been the case had they come under an all-island parliament, because at least then you would have had the strong Ulster Unionist contingent mm. represented. Yes. So yes. it was the worst of all possible worlds for the the southern Unionist community, for those in the, the, the three remaining Ulster counties, those in Dublin and of course those in Cork, the strong unionist community uh, in Cork, mm-hmm. uh, they were they viewed what the government was being as doing as a utter betrayal uh, of of what they had fought for during the First World War. They had said, "We have served King and country. We have fought and died in our in our thousands, and we we deserve to have our loyalty recognised by." Ireland being retained within the United Kingdom, yeah. So, so it's
1: a mess. Oh, it's a <laughs> mess because it's it's you know it's I, I, certainly I'm aware of Irish nationalists in the north feeling abandoned by their yes. southern nationalists, yep. uh, um, uh, you know, as a result of the acceptance of the treaty and the partition of the well, country. That, but, that, but that, inter- that comes later. That comes yes, later. Yes, but, yes. I mean, it's, but it's just interesting to consider the other side of it: the yes. the, the, the southern unionists being yep. abandoned by well, Ler- and, and as far as, but of course, happen. this was collateral damage to ensure that the northern state would be a Protestant state. Well, it, it's interesting.
0: That if you have a look, I mean, you mentioned the the, the program, Michael Portillo's program. Uh, I teach a course in UCC, and we have a look at many of the same documents. The original conception of the Government of Ireland Act was you, you had to give Ireland home rule, but you also had to have partition. But the Conservative Party, who were the ones who were backing it, Walter Long, they had they were much closer to the Southern Unionists than they were to the Ulster Unionists. I mean, they they their party was based upon the the aristocracy and the landed gentry Uh, and that was a far higher proportion of southern unionism than it was the more industrial north where you had large numbers of working-class Protestants and and so on and so forth so so the original idea behind partition was that yes Ireland was cut in two but we'll try to make sure it comes back together as quickly as possible or be under British control Uh, and that we will give Ireland what they want, that Ireland will be governed entirely by Irish men albeit that Britain will keep a strategic interest in terms of ports and free trade and so on and so forth Uh, but we'll we'll try and make sure that this border which we've just introduced is got rid of as quickly as we possibly can, I mean you're shaking your head and that's that's exactly, it's very very confusing the thought that the British in, in, in the very act of introducing partition many of those who are doing that did it in such a way as they genuinely believed that it would lead to a swift reunification. Uh, so, and, and it's also, it's let, also, let's
1: settle that little corner well, it's and, interesting. and we'll, we'll work on the well, rest of part,
0: part of the idea was that you would have then a nine county partition. Uh, and, and the idea is that if you had a nine county partition, reunification was much more likely to be swift than if you had the six county partition it's then only when that decision is taken to take a six county partition route that's when in effect partition becomes pretty well entrenched and, and
1: and hard to get out of. Yeah, exactly. Uh, very, very uh, difficult. A, a noose uh, a, around the neck, so to speak. It is it, it's it is such a, a mess of a story. I, I, I find it interesting that those who landed arms in 1912 and, learned to, and signed the covenant in blood, a million of them, mm-hmm. uh, to prevent home rule were the first to get home rule. There's an irony in uh, that. And,
0: and of course, remember, many of those are in government. Uh, people like Lord Birkenhead, one of the signatories to the... Uh, the treaty, of, uh, formerly F.E. Smith Galloper-Smith, so named because of when he was galloping around during the, the the Home Rule crisis of 1912 to 1914. And that, of course, was a lesson that the Republicans, and more the more not moderate nationalists, were, were, were not afraid to, to point out the, the sheer hypocrisy of the British portraying, as it were, the armed resistance to British rule on the part of Irish Republicans as the work of a murder gang, when many of those individuals who were in that government uh, had been prepared to to do, in effect, what the IRA and the Sinn Féin had done, which is a unilateral declaration of independence, separation from the United Kingdom, um, and and in effect, potentially sort of allying with Britain's enemies. Uh, so the sheer hypocrisy uh, of, of the actions of people like Waterland and, and Lord Birkenhead in
1: particular. Well, it's also ironic that in showing their loyalty... <laughs> yes, yes, of course. <laughs> they, they, they were well, this, this utterly is you, disloyal. Yes, absolutely. And this is where you start to really
0: get into... If you, if you start following it too far down that rabbit hole... Mm. Uh, you, you, well, I suppose it's semantics.
1: Out. They would say what was being uh, foisted upon them yeah. w- was not about uh, a loyalty to the Union, but a, but a disloyalty to it. Mm-hmm. and then So they were... Uh, got, yeah, it, it's... It's it's uh, very twisted, uh, yeah. the whole story, um, uh, and all through this time, uh, you know, activities are happening uh, uh, across the country. Um, there's there's a whole head of steam building, and and it you know reaches various climaxes through 1920. Mm. Uh, what's happening down in the likes of West Cork? Well, what what happens down in West Cork and elsewhere is the reprisals.
0: Now become sort of a, a huge part of the story. Uh, the British, in effect, had said, "Well, we've been sitting ducks for for so long. Uh, we're now going to start. Any time we're hit, we're going to strike back." Uh, you mentioned Balbriggan. There are many other instances: Trim, uh, in 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 Meath, uh, crockery in Roscommon, and and across many of the, the places. For example, in West Cork, where an IRA attack was launched. The, the classic reprisal was burning down the local creamery, uh, a, which, of course, crippled the local economy. Uh, and utterly stupid, because it, it was much more likely to drive people in the, into the arms of the IRA than to separate them, because, in effect, the, the, the deed has already been done and you're going to be punished whether you're supporting the IRA or not. And a and number of people just simply are driven into the hands of the IRA by that reprisal policy. Uh-huh. Now, in, in fact, this is illegal. I mean, the, the, I think the point to note is that the, these reprisals were illegal. There was, the, the, the army and the police had no right, in effect, to start punishing anybody, uh, even even wrongdoers, be outside the, the normal channels of law and order. But so extreme had the position become by late 1920, that the British not alone recognised reprisals, but actually said, we're going to have official reprisals. Because part of the problem the British faced is that their, their forces were becoming ill-disciplined. They were simply ignoring their officers and, and taking their weapons out and, and doing what they, they wanted. And from the point of view of military discipline, the one thing the British feared was that breakdown of of the hierarchical control within the army. So the British inaugurate this official policy of reprisals to give some semblance of control where the officers can tell them, yes, you're under attack now, but we are are, under our direction, with our control, with government sanction, you will be going out and, and wreaking your revenge.
1: Because the song, you know, "Come Out ye Black and Tans, Come Out and Fight Me Like a Man" refers to the the, you know, the flying squads. The early it seems their tactic was to to land up in early morning under the cover of darkness, mm-hmm. uh, turn places over, mm-hmm. take people away. Well, I mean, that, that was
0: they were the regular searchers, as it were, and and but you, you beyond that you had just the. You did have, a, I mean, for example, Michael Collins' house, if you've ever been down there in West Cork, in, in just outside of, of Kilty, that house was burnt down. I mean, they, they once they knew who the Republicans were, uh, a pretty standard policy was simply to burn that house down. Uh, Michael Collins's house actually was, was one of the newer houses. They just moved into a relatively recently a two-story house. Um, and that's burned down, and in fact, the family has to move back into to in fact, the couch It's sort of a little bit similar, I suppose, to the to the scene which you see in the uh, the wind that shakes the barley. So that 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 reprisals. I mean, that's one of the keynotes of the the autumn of nineteen twenty, along with with the hunger strikes, uh, and and the British. I mean, really shoot themselves in the foot uh, because this is absolutely just because a government says uh, a policeman can go out and. Burn a house down doesn't make it legal. Uh, it's it was it was absolutely illegal. So the British government, in effect, had to say we are sanctioning our armed forces to do illegal things simply because we can't control them otherwise. And it was humiliating for the for for the British. But for the Irish in Britain, of course, they're they're, they're caught in in the middle. I mean, if they are too vocal about what's going on, certainly in the aftermath of what was seen as something like Bloody Sunday, because in the Britain in Britain, all the attention was on the British soldiers who were who were shot dead. Uh, in Ireland, of course, the attention was on what had happened in Croke Park, uh, but in the aftermath of, Bl- of Bloody Sunday, there was this perception that these gallant officers, decorated war heroes, had simply been murdered in their beds, uh, and this is an example of the depths to which the IRA would plumb. Um, that's how the, the story was presented in Britain, and of course, the Irish, in, in that circumstance, are inevitably going to be on the defensive. Uh, Bush, they still they are still strength in numbers. I mean, and the Irish are there in sufficient numbers, and they tend to live in certain areas in in London and in Liverpool and, and elsewhere, uh, and and so they, they didn't completely hide their light under under the bushel. Mm-hmm. There was it was a very prominent organisation, the Irish Self Determination League. Uh, Art O'Brien was the the president of it. A new biography has just appeared, and he he certainly did make uh his presence and the organization's presence felt they, they were very active in terms of producing copy for newspapers uh, and giving the, the presentation of events as it were from an
1: irish perspective Mm. A tumultuous year, there is no question. We mentioned the soldiers of the 1st Battalion of the Connacht Rangers based in India, mutinying over conditions. 61 arrested, 14 sentenced to death, one executed. That man executed was Private James Daly. Uh, Firing squad took him out, the last British soldier to be executed for sedition, uh, as being one of the leaders of the Connacht Rangers who mutinied over Mm. what was happening in Ireland. That was November 2nd. Uh, It was a day following Kevin Barry becoming another martyr for the cause of Irish independence, hanged in Mountjoy jail for his part in the deaths of three British soldiers in an ambush. And it leads up to the Bloody Sunday, as referenced November 21st, where Collins' squad takes out 14 British agents early in the morning. The RIC and Auxiliaries Head off to the Gaelic football match, and well, Jones's Road, Joneses presumably Road, yeah, as yeah, it was yeah. at the time, Croke Park now, uh, Dublin Tip on the pitch, uh, uh, and that leads us into the Kilmichael Michael ambush. Tom Barry, who, so that was all going on, by the way. Tom Barry and the the West Cork gang. Are, well, I mean, Tom Barry is an interesting figure. Because, I mean, is this the moment? Because what one, one, what I, what I'd be interested in finding out is what was the moment the British realised they were just really dealing with something beyond, or well, have they already realised? Well, this? the
0: Battle of Kilmichael Michael is is definitely
1: a game changer. If you have a look at the cabinet discussion uh,
0: i think i can't remember whether it's the, the following day or two days later the, the british and it's, the, the discussion is there and it's accessible via the british archives website and in effect they're saying this is of a different character to anything that's gone before this is much more a straightforward military fight and the ira got the best of us i mean these these are Individuals, the, the flying column or the the auxiliary company that had been wiped out uh, were, were troops who were many years experienced collectively, sort of probably decades of experience uh, in fighting, and they just simply wiped out. So the British do recognise this as being, in effect, initiating a, an entirely new phase. So, so the, the British response is to declare martial law. In effect, they're saying if, if this is going to be war, then we're going to allow the army, in effect, to take over... Everything to to, to that it's now civil government is suspended,
1: which hadn't worked out for them so well post rising nineteen sixteen. Had, uh, hadn't hadn't, although because uh, it the, was it was martial law that 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 sent it. was martial law,
0: and they, they, they heard. But I suppose the British would have said, well, at least they hadn't had another rising mm. sort of in the rest of 1916. But, but, but,
1: but whereas previously it might have been about coercion and suppression yeah. uh, now they realise okay we're, there's actually there's there's a real fight on the go yeah. here but I'd like us to come back to that we'll maybe look at Bloody Sunday in a little more depth yeah. uh, even though it's not in Cork but it's yeah. an operation run by a Cork man yeah. let's face it in, in Mick Collins uh, and then look at Tom Barry's uh, ambush uh, in Kilmichael between McCroom and Bantry and as you just alluded to there the significance of that event and then of course The Burning of Cork, Mm -hmm. which is just such a, a dramatic story. All in one incredible, crazy year. Yeah. Um... One thing I wanted to ask right at the beginning, maybe we'll just conclude with this, Gabriel Doherty of UCC History Department, and thank you very much for taking part in the Cork History Matters podcast episode two. The RIC decimated by, uh, well, maybe not desertion, but resignation as a result of what's happening. Are some of the people resigning, well, first of all, I'm sure they shared some of the sympathies uh, for for asserting national rights uh, and desires, but would there have been any sense of, you know, you know, smelling what was coming. Would anyone have known that we were six months away? You know, no, really. I mean, it just it I mean, nobody could really have
0: known. I mean, it was very difficult to know what was going to happen the following morning. And yeah. So, to try and project further down the line, I mean, again, I'll repeat the fact that the British had introduced this act as far as the British were concerned that act was this, the, that they were introducing Home Rule and they weren't going to go any further. We know now, of course, that they went significantly further a, a few months later. But up until the very last minute, just before the truce, the British were saying, that's it. I mean, we are we are dealing with a murder gang. We are dealing with criminals. We don't negotiate with criminals. You simply arrest them or kill them if, if, if needs be, but you don't negotiate with them. The British do a 180-degree... Uh, U-turn uh, over the space of a weekend which produces the the truce and, and then the negotiations but nobody nobody could know nobody could know exactly where things were, were going to go. Uh, one point of course remember is that you did have intelligence being passed to the IRA by some sympathetic elements within the RSE, most famously of course Michael Collins himself recruits a number of figures uh, in, in Dublin uh, remember you also have a number uh, some intelligence coming from what is now Collins Barracks which was then Victoria Barracks. Uh, Florio Donoghue, who was the intelligence officer for the First Cork Brigade, which area covered the, the city, his future wife was employed as a as a typist in in the barracks, and she was slipping out uh, the latest signals and missives. Uh, basically, I think you know, through her underwear uh, was was and um, the IRA were in possession of many of those messages before. The, the intended recipients uh, had actually received them so so though and of course remember that, that it went the other way i mean one of the most controversial aspects of the war of independence this happens perhaps more in very late 1920 early 1921 is the perception or the fear within the ira that intelligence is now starting to go to the british that you do have informers and you're now to have, have a really rapid increase in the number of people being shot uh and disappeared um uh, uh, that's again. That's more nineteen, late twenty, early nineteen twenty one. But it is a very, very controversial period, and and certainly of, of the entire country, it was the Cork number one brigade area where the most intense search for uh, uh, informers is ongoing, where the the highest number of alleged informers uh, are are shot.
1: Okay, you know what? We'll we'll finish with with McSweeney because yeah. this this podcast episode was about getting to the heart of that story, uh, the story of his body being left in the casket and, and, and deliberately left there saying that, y- y- you know, the, we're not going to play ball with how you're, you've yes. decided this is going to go. Although they do get to make the calls around the funeral as such. So it's very different to how McCurtain's funeral had been. Yes. Uh, but up to the North Cathedral, the casket goes. Yes. Only a limited number of people allowed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and
0: the British are basically in, in the cathedral. They're making sure there's no demonstrations. They, they follow... The cortege all the way to to Saint Finbarr's. Um, there'll
1: there'll be no military aspect to this, no, although there is later.
0: There I, is I, but when after the the departure, then you do have an IRA firing party going in. But I mean, the the fact that the British in effect felt compelled to intervene in a religious ceremony to that extent uh, as it further accentuated the as it were, the religious. Uh, antagonism, which was in existence, they believe they they said, well, of,
1: well, co- of course they're right though. I mean, it isn't just a religious, uh, you know, it it is political. Oh, it, so it, their political, analysis but, of it, well, it but it, they're it, willing it to interfere political. in that in, realm. In, in,
0: and they said that the IRA would never sort of <laughs> try to interfere with sort of the, the funeral of somebody that they had killed, mm-hmm. and yet the British, as far as the Irish are concerned, the British had killed McSweeney. The British, of course, said he killed himself, mm-hmm. um, but then they compound. Their actions during the hunger strike, by their actions uh, during the the passage of the body back to Ireland, as they almost almost kidnapping the body. I mean, the body is is on a boat which is set for Dublin, and the British in effect bought it and saying, it's "No, it's not." So oh. I mean, we we tell you where the body is going, and it comes back to that point about McSweeney at the very beginning of the hunger strike, saying, "I'll decide." Uh, it, it'll be in my hands uh, how this thing is going to go, and, and in death, as it were, that same philosophy of refusing to recognise British power um, is is continued. And one of the most effective, well, the first starting point of challenging British power, is to in effect refuse to acknowledge it. And, and McSween, his whole life is as well as a tone poem in in that direction.
1: And yet, of course, it's mixed. So, so they 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 do, but 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 the British do get to. Call some ways. The,
0: that no, they do But the, 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 as it were, it, it's a display of naked military power mm. uh, that it clearly has no consent of the the, the Irish people behind it. Uh, and, and again, to a certain extent, echoing some of the the philosophy of people like Mahatma Gandhi or indeed Martin Luther King, the whole idea behind this this type of approach is to is to reveal the 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 iron fist uh, that's hiding behind the velvet glove.
1: Gabriel Doherty, thank you so much. I look forward to reconvening to talk a little more on Bloody Sunday, the Kill Michael ambush, and the burning of Cork. Yep. Thank you. What a year 1920
0: was. <laughs> yes, certainly. You've been listening to a Red FM podcast. For more extra content, go to redextra.ie.